Hey, what's up, Blazer fans? Welcome to the Blazer's Edge podcast. I am Tara Bowen Biggs, joined as always by Blazer's outsider, Danny Morang. Danny? Oh, hi, Tara. Wow, you have a lot more enthusiasm than I do right now. Shocking. I know. We're just gonna <laughs> we're just gonna run with it. And I brought on somebody else to help me. Uh I don't know if we're gonna what kind of momentum we're gonna get going, but Steve DeWald, writer and editor for Blazer's Edge, is also with us tonight. Steve, welcome. <laughs> All of the enthusiasm here. I am I am basking <laughs> the glory of adding a new Hall of Famer to the Blazers roster and coming off of a rare win for this season. So I'm excited. I'm I'm genuinely more enthusiastic than I have been for most of this season. Come on, then, Steve, put your hands together. Then what? awesome. Let's put your hands together. Come on, clap it up. <laughs> I'm going to start off by asking you, Steve, because uh, we Dan and I had a chance to talk right after uh, Portland learned that Carmelo Anthony was going to be joining the team. But I haven't had a chance to talk to you. So take me through what happened. What were you doing? What were you wearing? Where were you? Give me the whole story about where were you when Carmelo Anthony was announced to be coming to Portland. And we we don't have a bleep button, correct? That is correct. We All are right. a PG so, podcast. So I it definitely was a uh, – I have like a three-word phrase that I've been saying. Um, Carmelo, what would be the bleep button, and then Anthony after that in a certain cadence. And I've said that at least five times every day since it's happened. Like, like um, then let, me, and, let me try it out like this. Carmelo, gosh darn, Anthony! Like that? Yeah, cl- close. Very close to that. Okay, great. Um, so, but it's not always a bad thing when I'm saying it, it just, it depends on what's going on. But, uh, you know, I think for me as an NBA fan, a person who has, you know, an odd or made fun of easy to make fun of laugh to have Kawhi Leonard win the title last year was a big thing for all people like me. (laughs) And now we have a guy who is, you know, I, I am one of those people, a bald dude in Portland that has worn some of the worst hats that no one should let me into public with. And, you know, now I, you know, I paved, I I helped pave the road that Carmelo is going to walk on in Portland. So, you know, I I really, I am enthusiastic about his fit here off the court, um, on the court. You know, I, it can't be any worse than what we've seen from a few of the guys at Powerful. Let him finish. But I, I was just saying that the only the people that are the most excited about Carmelo coming to Portland are the haberdasheries. That's those are the people who are the most excited. And I mean, really, it's been it, it is going to be interesting. Uh, and I think that for me, it's what the problem with where I am. I have my reservations is, you know, I really some of the first sporting events I can remember watching and gathering around with my family and friends was boxing matches. And like one of the big things with boxing is. A, a term or a idea called ring rust. And it's when a fighter spends a prolonged amount of time outside of the ring and, you know, it, they lose steps drastically in that time or they look rusty when they come back. And that's something that I, I am not going to really make hard predictions or anything until I kind of see what he looks like when he kind of gets in the rhythm of everything. Um, I, I don't think he is as bad of a player as he was in Houston, I, I was working for inside the USA Today Sports Media Group covering the Rockets last year. So I had front row seats to what that experiment was. That was, I feel, always doomed to fail from just kind of the role they put him in the offense they run. 
his prior relationship with Mike D'Antoni. Um, it, the Rockets let go of, or Jeff Bezdelic, who was kind of their defensive guru that kind of really put Houston on the map with that switch style defense that really gave the Warriors a lot of problems. Um, he stepped down, uh, and it was very close to when Carmelo came there and Bezdelic was a guy who was also in New York. And then when Melo left, it directly coincided with Bezdelic rejoining a, a Rockets team that was in desperate need of defense. So I feel like there was a lot of things going on. I mean, that doesn't even touch on the fight that went on between Rondo and Chris Paul that you're talking in during that 10 game stint, the, the Rockets are in complete disarray. So I, I think, yes, things are not going absolutely great in Portland to say the least, but I feel like even what Portland has going on right now is a better situation than what Carmelo was in, in Houston last year. Are you talking a better situation, uh, like basketball fit wise? I think basketball fit on the court and off the court organizationally, I think it's a better fit. Um, and, and really Adrian Wojnarowski in the, in the release that, Obviously, he worked hand in hand with Neil O'Shea with a lot of that information. It sounds like, um, you know, it was we need him and he needs us. And really, that was not necessarily the situation that was going on in Houston. I mean, I, I think here in Portland, I think he is going to have a somewhat clear and defined role. And that it is to be a power forward that is not a complete net negative at you know, 90% of the time he's on the court. Now, uh, when we talked the other day, Dan, you were pretty sure that Carmelo Anthony is going to have the opportunity to start. Um, is that correct? And Steve, do you, are you kind of feeling the same way? I, I just feel like why I think he could start is because I don't think you can play Carmelo Anthony and Scala BCA at the same time. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like you are going to get absolutely torched at the rim. Um, I, and really, I think Nasir Little is playing excellent. And I think we're going to touch on that a little later. But I just feel Carmelo, it, it, I think one of the things that is where, what I do worry about, I think it's going to be staggering to see how slow he looks on the perimeter when teams put him on the perimeter. And so there's a lot of guys that are going to be moving downhill towards the rim in a hurry. And you're, that's where you're going to want a guy like Whiteside who – Really, I'm optim I'm somewhat optimistic of it because Whiteside has done the best when he he really doesn't have to and don't take this as the wrong way, but he doesn't have to think about what's going on. Like if he's at the rim, he knows he has to stop the person advancing to the rim. And I think with Carmelo on the floor, he's not going to have a choice a lot of the times. I think because uh, teams are going to target Carmelo early and often when he's on the floor defensively. Dan, do you want to add anything? Uh, the more I watch Nasir and the more I see how much this team needs his en energy, the more I think they're, they're going to give him the Von Lee treatment. Like, like they need that pickup. I think Nasir probably has a chance to continue starting. And I think it'll be for a short period, uh, four, five minutes at most. And basically Stotts winds him up. And says, go get him. Mm -hmm. And he goes and wrecks shop for five minutes. Just balls to the wall. Absolute insanity when he's on the floor. And, I mean, I, I don't expect anything less from him. But I think they're going to use him like that to start games and to start halves. And I think it, unless things get 
so sideways that Melo just can't stay on the floor defensively. Um, I think that it'll end up with Melo being in the closing lineups just to give one additional shooter out there because it's what they were doing with Mario. It's what they are doing with Oliver. But we did see Stotts give Nasir some late run against the Spurs. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. I, I think that, that maybe they might need Nasir a little bit more than even maybe I thought. And they may rely on that energy a little bit more. But part of me still thinks that they're going to they're gonna look out pretty damn hard at starting Carmelo. I would think that the end of the game would be situational based on both the other team, but also on if they have anybody who has a hot hand. Because, you know, some nights they are just holding on, trying to get stops defensively. And if somebody, if you know, if Damian isn't going off or CJ isn't going off, you know, then they need all the shooters on the floor. But maybe sometimes when, or maybe they even just do the thing where they switch every possession that they get a chance and send Nas in, send Anthony in, and just switch them off because they have such different, uh, different skill sets. One question that I have that's been kind of in the back of my mind is like, Carmelo and Anthony Tolliver are basically the same age and has, you know, the way that they've both played historically, are we just assuming that because Melo has always been on a consistently, you know, high level that at this point in his career, you know, it's, it's the fact that he's been around for so long and had so much high level experience um, you know, Hall of Fame type um, numbers and everything that we're just assuming he's going to be able to stay out on the floor while we've been watching Anthony Tolliver have a hard time remaining? Like, I guess, what's the difference between those two players at this point that we know of? I uh, Well, with, with Anthony, I think one part of his game is has always been, and I think he was even, he was able to do it in, in Houston a little bit, and and at times with Oklahoma City, and I think this is something where Portland will be more likely to do with their second unit, is he's able to, you're able to dump the ball to him on the baseline and just have him go to work. And if he's in the second unit, there's a chance he's going to be going against, you know, a first, second year guy that, you know, he's a veteran who's played, you know, high usage his entire career, and he has a lot of tricks up his sleeve. You're going to see some of the almost like the Kurt Thomas Blazers type stuff where you're going to just see him do some, you know, old man at the rec league type stuff um, that Portland just hasn't had. And like Anthony Tolliver, I think we're, you know, we're seeing, you know, how useful is a stretch four that can't stretch the floor. And that ends you ends up on the bench really is what happens there. And and I just feel like, and I'm, Mario Hazonia has played two games that are probably his best two games in Portland coming into this, but I just don't think that that's necessarily the the role they envisioned for Hazonia to play. And I think that's a, in large part mainly due to the Zach Collins injury, obviously, but also Tolliver's ineffectiveness at that power forward position. So when I heard of this, I was as shocked I don't know if I was as shocked, but I was extremely shocked, probably like you guys were. But upon reflection, or maybe after getting a bunch of propaganda, I started to fall for <laughs> the feel-good story aspect of this. You know, why not 
let Carmelo Anthony have a chance to finish out his career in a way that's more commensurate with like what he meant to you know the the league. Why not be the place where you know like I think was it uh, Dwight James and I think Adrian Wojnarowski were both talking about like. They need Carmelo Anthony. Carmelo Anthony needs the Blazers. So why not give it a chance? So it makes sense to me. Give this guy a chance to finish out his career. Maybe later on, you know, the trade trade deadline, maybe trade him to the Nuggets so that he can finish out the last (laughs) half of his last year there or to wherever we'll take him back. Why not? Why? What does he deserve? He alienated a franchise and demanded a trade out of Denver, then got stuck in a hellscape in New York and tore that place apart and ISOed himself in, in, into nothingness, then tore apart a team in Oklahoma City, tore apart a team in Houston, forced a coach to hang up and quit, then said he, he was willing to change for two other different teams. So, you know, Houston and Oklahoma City didn't change and then complained about how he couldn't get back on a team for another year. Like, why? Well, I, I just want to be clear on the New York thing as far as ISOing himself into oblivion and playing out of position. A lot of that had to do with the very poor ownership there. James yeah, yeah, Dolan. Dolan. I mean, Dolan definitely had a role in he wanted to have Amari Stoudemire and Carmelo Anthony on the floor at the same time, even though that compromised the position that Carmelo Anthony should have been playing. He was playing Carmelo Anthony at a small forward, giving him a green light to do that. That way he could have Amari Stoudemire at the power forward position. And, you know, really Carmelo's best season is when Amari gets hurt and Carmelo comes in and plays power forward and the Knicks look unstoppable. They make it to the second round and they play, you know, a very modern style of basketball. I mean, similar to what we see today. Um, I, I just think for for me, I mean, this is a I mean, it hasn't been as bad and for as prolonged, but I mean, Vince Carter has found a way to transform himself. Dwight Howard has transformed himself. And with Vince Carter, I mean, this is a guy who, I mean, quit on the Raptors. I mean, granted, he had a lot, much longer arc of redemption and the the bad sour taste is very small. But this is not completely uncommon for NBA stars. I, but I, I he think, remade his, his game and he recommitted to the yeah, game the yeah, same and way that's, and that's did. what And that's what Carmelo has to do. And I think one of the big things, too, is, though, is, this idea that Carmelo didn't accept his role in Houston, I, I believe is false. Like, I think if you look at his percentages, he was shooting almost exclusively inside the paint or from beyond the three-point line. I mean, there was a lot of, like I outlined earlier, there's a lot of factors that went into why it didn't work in Houston. And not all of it was tied to Carmelo not accepting his role. I mean, he came off the bench. I mean, it was a far cry different than what he said in Oklahoma City a year previously. Um, I, I think... Two with Carmelo, I mean, I I don't I can't remember off the top of my head a star of his stature that came so close to his NBA mortality and gets a chance to come back. And if that doesn't humble you, I don't know what will. And I would assume that you know, especially after watching Dwayne Wade, one of his close friends, go on this tour and, and see, you know, this is the send send off that he wants. And and Carmelo's been explicit about that. And I think, too, is like part of the reason my feel-good story comes comes to the Blazers. It's not really a feel-good story, but it's a, it's a shot to guys on this roster that have not gotten off to the start they wanted or numbers-wise they've gotten off to their start, but it's not impacting the game in a positive way. And if you've looked at the two guys that had a great game in San Antonio, C.J. McCollum played the best game of the season that he's had, mm-hmm. and 
Hassan Whiteside had great numbers, but more importantly, his numbers meant something. They were they were not tall JJ Hickson. They were actually like impactful numbers. <laughs> and so that's all huge. And and whether or not that's explicit or implicit, like the message the, has been sent. The mellow me. bump, baby. Yeah. And well, and it, and I really, I mean, really, the, how I talk myself into this is, is if this team goes on this road trip and loses six games and you have Damian Lillard who's putting it all out there and, you know, you look at a, you look at a lost season right in the face and then you look at an open roster spot and Pau Gasol sitting there. I mean, that is not a message you want to send to a guy who's been the linchpin of your franchise since he's been in the league. Like this, like I understand why they did it. And obviously, I mean, it's it's desperate. It's it's much more desperate than what's coming out of the PR department. But I think it can work. I I just don't think it can work anymore. I, I don't think he has that much to give. And everybody's like, well, he's going to be better than Tolliver and Hazonian. I'm like, yeah, that, that's a that's a bar that doesn't really matter. But but I, I think my bar for making it work is. Is if it if it sends a clear message to CJ McCollum and Hassan Whiteside that you need to be you need to pay at play at least somewhat at your salary level, then yes, that's a victory. If it sends a message to Damian Lillard that we are going to try, I mean, anything to get you to where this isn't a lost season because their hands are tied before December fifteenth when some of these assets become tradable. So you know if, if those three things happen, then I don't care how Carmelo plays on the floor. It's a victory. Dan, you asked me why I should, why I think he should get the chance. And then you rattle off a whole bunch of things about, you know, the, all the wreckage that he, you say Mm -hmm. that he has left behind. I don't know how much, if all of that is true, but I know that around the league, when people talk about Carmelo Anthony, they call him, Hall of Famer, future Hall of Famer Carmelo Anthony, and there's a reason that they do that. Yeah, sure. That people say that about washed players all the time. They have this idea. People were, were are still mythicizing Kobe. Like the last four years of his career, he was he was a shell of himself, and people were like, oh no, Kobe still got it. You know, he gets that sixty piece in that last game, and it's like. People were celebrating that, and it was the one of the most sham games in maybe in NBA I think that history. People already who already loved Kobe were celebrating that. I don't think people were looking at that, going, "Wow, he's still got a lot to give as far as basketball yeah. goes." I mean, the cult the cult of Kobe is very different, and Kobe Bryant's body failed him. Like, I, I, I mean, Melo's body it's not doing him any any favors either. Like, he's not no. getting. He's okay. What we do know is he can't stay in front of anybody. He can't get by in anybody. Like his 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 offensive prowess is predicated on I'm six foot nine and I'm a big dude and I can shoot over the top of you sometimes or I'm in an open space. Mm-hmm. We know that. We saw that in Oklahoma City. We saw that in Houston. You don't get older and stay away from basketball for a year and, and get better athletically. Like that's just that's not a thing. There was one Disney movie about a pitcher in the Devil Rays organization who didn't play baseball for 10 years, all of a sudden a 97-9 fastball. We're going to use the exception as the rule? No. No. Well, I'm not, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying the likelihood of Carmelo aging into a position where he's still playable is different than Kobe Bryant being a 6'8 guy who is tasked with guarding, sh- guard, yeah. guarding shooting guards and small forwards of the ruptured Achilles. I mean, there's a difference between – 
a guy who's guarding those guys and can't move and a guy who's guarding power forwards and can't move. I mean, granted, it's not ideal. And like I said before, my expectation for this to work and why this could work and why this could be a victory for the Blazers has very little to do with what Carmelo Anthony is actually going to do on the court. Like I said, if it outlines those three things of keeping Damian Lillard at least as an or- as an organization saying, we are not going to let this season go completely to waste. And yes, we made mistakes in the offseason. And we were going to... Does this really and, make and, that, and that signal? I, I, don't, I, don't think it, I don't think desperation means it does, though. That's so the does, thing. So just leaving it open and not doing anything until December 15th, what is better, in your opinion? Here's the thought that, and this is the same thing I, I said to Tara when I signed. What happens if this desperation fails miserably right away, or even in a week or two or three weeks? Now they you've got, got him, and it's no, done. No, it's not done. That's the thing. Is like everybody thinks that these things are just these isolated incidents, and they don't matter. Like you, you look at every time that these guys get added to teams. So it's Carmelo, it's Dwight Howard, you know, the, these guys that have had like we don't like I, there's a reason why it takes absolute desperation for these guys to get signed. And, it, and very, 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 very rarely does it work out in a positive favor. Everybody's like pointing to Dwight Howard now. Seven teams a charm like that. That just seems like a bad idea because everywhere these guys go. Everybody talks about, oh, they're a great person. They're a great dude. Everybody has always said, Hassan Whiteside, great dude. Love him. Jovial. Laughter. Fun. Great guy. But he just checks the hell out. Like, just ADD. Just, you know, squirrel. And that's what causes the problems in games. Like, you have to keep him focused at all times. It's, it's the same kind of thing with Carmelo. It's like, why are you chasing this one thing when, in reality, the, the things that you think he could offer haven't been there for years and now you're putting this you're you're publicly putting him out there saying that we're so desperate we need to go to this if this doesn't work there are negative ramifications that come from that both internally and externally and honestly i don't think it's worth the risk and everybody's out there why are you you know just you know upset about this or going crazy about this what do they have to lose you can tear up that locker room you can do it. And then it doesn't matter what trades you make for the rest of the season. Because then you're in scramble mode. So that's one end of the spectrum. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like, Dan, this is a... I feel like the safe bet at this point is that it's not going to work out. Because so much is... is uh, stacked against Carmelo Anthony with mm-hmm. the amount of time he's been out, the amount of teams he's been through, all the stories about things, which I don't know how much those are based in reality. It's like, it seems like all of that is stacked against Carmelo Anthony, but you've, you've been in Portland long enough. You know that these stories are the ones that we fall for. And these are the ones that we go, you know what? Just because he didn't work out anywhere else doesn't mean he's not going to work out here. And we have Damian Lord in the locker room. And I don't see what's so bad about hoping that it's going to work out. We, we keep circling back to this. And I like push my hands against my temples. Why do you want to tempt fate with fail after fail after fail experiment? I don't understand that. If you do that in the business world, in the military world, in your relationships, you are going to have a miserable existence. I do not get that. 
Why do you, what is its desire to be this redemption story? Why? Why? I, I don't understand it. Why take that risk? I, I, I cannot comprehend that. Like taking on Whiteside, like Dame's trying to manage that still. And we want to throw Carmelo Anthony into that pot? Like that, like people are, are are out there right now on social media talking about. Well, this season can go to hell, but you know we'll, we have Whiteside and, and Carmelo, so it'll be fun. It's like that's not fun. Talking about the absolute and utter there's the difference between chaos and dysfunction. Like chaos is fun, dysfunction is miserable. Like I don't, we don't need to go into too much, but everybody kind of hints at these things. Like remember Festus Azili? Remember what that did to the team? Like and that was somebody who was on a very low plane as far as NBA existence. Well, you know what else is not fun? And you already called it circling the drain. So let's move on, if you all don't mind. <laughs> well, I, I just I don't I Danny didn't ask answer my question. So you think there's no ramification of just leaving a roster spot open and they l- continue to lose? What message does that send to Damian Lillard? I mean, there's negative ramifications to that too. There is. I mean, here's here's the, here's the question. What do you choose to believe in the narrative of Carmelo well, I, Anthony coming to Portland? In that in, in that I mean, well, judging, does Dame ask for him? Or judging did, by how Chris Chris Haynes has a tweet locked and loaded. Yeah. It, so there's obviously a discussion with Damian Lillard. But like, did Dame I, ask for it, or did they go to did they go to Dame and ask him if he was okay? I mean, it is a guy that Dame and CJ. Yes, Dame tempered those expectations before this season, but it's mm-hmm. don't act like this isn't a guy that both of them have hinted at before. Oh yeah, absolutely. But like, like I'm just saying, I'm just saying, yes, this could go off the. It's a non guaranteed contract. Like I don't like I know you are captain worst case scenario at all times, but like I don't think. <laughs> That just releasing him is the end of the world. And on December 15th, if Whiteside is as bad as you say he is, which granted, I am not thrilled with some of his production on the report on the on the court, they can get rid of him. Now, what I do worry about is the Blazers entering trade discussions desperate. Like that is yes, not a situation you, you want that. to be. And and in the past, Neil O'Shea has really not done that. I mean, the Aaron Aflalo trade was done from a position of strength. Now, the, the position of weakness probably was the Yusuf Nurkic trade, and that worked out. But, I mean, that was that was Portland at a position of weakness making that trade. No, no, I, I, I 100% agree with that. And that's, that's the thing is that if you – if let's, let's again, let's say Cornell doesn't work out. How are you then portrayed as far as what you're chasing this season? How do you how are you perceived on the market? I think you're portrayed as the same way you would have been if you were 10 games below 500 and had an open roster spot. I mean, for me, rolling the dice on Carmelo Anthony for me is not as damaging as signing a 39 year old center when you need depth at center <laughs> that has not played like that. If you want to talk about something that gets me yeah, as, no. ranting, as ranting as you were there, like I understand that because I've been there and, and for me that has been Pau Gasol because yep. that signing has made zero sense to me from the second they made it. I, I don't, don't disagree. And, and again, like you could get something good out of Carmelo. You could. I, I just don't think it's going to be enough to justify the the other side of things. That's basically what I keep coming back to. I think that's I think that's probably where we disagree the most. Like I think we are probably pretty close on our expectations for production mm-hmm. on the floor. Yeah. But as far as as the risk of 
leaving that roster spot open and losing, continuing to lose and at least trying something for me, those two lines are probably a lot closer than what it sounds like where you're at. And I, and, and I under, and I understand that. Okay, Tara, we'll stop. We'll stop we're, with all, all the heated we're, exchange. We're, 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 we're still, we're done circling. <laughs> all right, gentlemen, we talked about it just a little bit and, uh, but maybe we want to elaborate and that is, uh, Naz Little has he's been kind of a highlight in a somewhat rough couple of weeks when you know he got inserted into, into the starting lineup a couple games ago. He's been playing well, like you said, Dan. He brings energy. My question, I mean, my question was going to be whether or not like how this impacts uh, Naz Little. We talked about that a little bit more, so maybe you all could talk about basketball wise what the best case scenario might look like for some of these players who maybe are going to get displaced well I, I i i think what you said earlier tara is i i don't think nasir little is going to exit this lineup like I, I think he is going to be in the rotation whether that's still in the starting lineup in the bondley treatment which i could definitely see um I think his energy is just too contagious. I mean, you hit a, on it today in your feature where, you know, the numbers back it up. I mean, he is moving faster than any of the other Blazers players, more consistently moving at that speed and, and covering a bunch of ground in not the same amount of minutes as some of these other guys are. What's encouraging for me is in that last game, you're seeing him run the perimeter, do the handoffs, run the normal offense, and and really – that stuff is what's going to really separate him and really carve out a role for him because the energy's there. I mean, that offensive rebound where he pinned the ball on, I believe it was Rudy Gay, like mm-hmm. Rodney Hood, you know, gave him all the credit, deservedly so. I mean, that was at a pivotal part in that game. And that, I mean, he, it's crazy that a rookie is setting the tone, but when you have some guys on this team where, like, I mean, Dan, Dan touched on it, I mean, effort. And attention span can go away when you see a guy like that who is laser focused with that much intensity and effort. That's the type of stuff that gets, I would imagine, gets Damian Lillard excited. And that's the type of stuff that maybe causes some other guys to reevaluate how they're approaching things. I think that's the biggest one. And, and Joe brought this up when we were prepping for the show the other night. He's like, watch Hassan after Nasir makes a big play, a hustle play. And all of a sudden, the song starts kind of motoring a little bit faster, mm-hmm. playing a little bit bigger, playing a little bit stronger. And, and it, it's it's contagious, but it's like if you wanted to look at this, and this is very unbrave for me, in like the worst possible way, Hassan can see that and be like, man, I can't, I can't look lazy next to that. Like I've got to show something. So if you're thinking like worst case scenario, like mindset wise, best case scenario, he looks at that and goes, okay, I got to step it up. But mm-hmm. either way, you're getting more – when Nasir is on the floor with Whiteside, Whiteside is more engaged. That that has that has been a trend so far. Like you have seen Whiteside, instead of doing the the Nurkic flip shots, putting his shoulder into somebody and leaning in and finishing, being more physical with the rebounds, running the floor a little bit. I mean, how many how many times this season have we had the Blazers got into their offensive set and at 16 seconds, Whiteside still not in the frame? When, when Nasir is on the floor, I I see Passan running the floor. So I, I think his energy is contagious, and I think wow, that I can't wait to watch for that. Just just watch when Nasir dives somewhere or makes a, a tip play or and it's a, comes it's back, just, cuts the dunk. It, it, it's there. 
it's not just isolated to Whiteside either. I, no. I, I think it's, you know, you it's guys like Rodney Hood. I mean, effort is not an issue with Rodney Hood, mm-hmm. but I mean, it gets him fired up. And when Rodney Hood is attacking downhill, he is very dangerous because he already has the outside game working. I, I just think that it, he's lifted the whole team. And, uh, and like Dan pointed it out, and this is, and I and he's the first person I saw, and I've seen some other people make this comparison too, but I, I think Dan deserves credit on this. It, it really is a lot of that vintage Gerald Wallace type feel to his game. And, and really, if that's where he, if that's where he makes it to being picked that late in the first round, that is such a huge steal, especially when you look at what Anthony Simons is doing, mm-hmm. you know, at the drafted in the same position. I mean, this is what good teams do. This is what the Spurs did for two the Raptors. Yeah, exactly. The like, Raptors currently, yes. Like, you, you get the depth from these guys. Here's the thing, that before anybody gets, like, too crazy in Nasir, I could care less if Nasir hits threes. Mm. I, I love the fact that he potentially could, but his energy, his hustle, his defense, and his finishing at the rim are enough for me in a rookie year for 18 minutes a night. Well, that kind of leads to my next question, which is if he plays every night, what do you think is the ceiling for him by, by the end of the year? Steve, I mean, you, you you scouted him. I think by the by the end of the year, I think you're having a guy that you can put out there and have him switch and help Dame and CJ late in the year when they're getting, you know, people don't like to get stuck on screens late in the year. And he's a guy you can put out there to mitigate that. Mm-hmm. I think he's a guy who, who really addre- addresses a huge need for Portland, especially in the Western Conference. If you have a guy that can come in and guard some of these big wings that are in the Western Conference, because let's face it, like, there's things are going to have to things are going to ha- there's a lot of them and things are going to have to go well for Portland and there's a very good chance that they're going to meet one of these teams very early in the playoffs as as things are looking at looking like they're going to play out right now. I mean granted that can all change. But he's going to be huge. Like I mean you look at for me I I think a higher ceiling in the rookie year is what I would like to see is his career tailed off but as a rookie Stanley Johnson in Detroit was guarding LeBron James in the first round of the playoffs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he frustrated him. And, and really, he was very active in that series. And then before that, I mean, he's a little bit different type of player. But Jimmy Butler, same thing. When Jimmy Butler was with Chicago and Chicago was matched up with the Heat early on when LeBron was there, I mean, you're talking about a rookie, not a high draft pick, getting a lot of run on the wing trying to be that lockdown defender. And really, if if Nasir Little can become that, that takes Portland to a totally different level, especially, and I mean, this goes, and, and I'll keep mentioning these two together, is because if Anthony Simons turns into what he looks like he's going to turn into, you have two guys that are going to be huge pieces for this Blazers team and make other pieces more movable. That kind of leads to my yet another question. You guys are just following exactly my path. Um, That is, how do Naz and Bazemore fit together on one team? I know they play different positions, but they play a somewhat similar style, which is tons of energy on defense. But can the Blazers afford to have them both playing together at the same time if they need more offense? They can. Uh, As long as Bazemore just kind of finds his his shot and is – consistent from the three-point line they can especially if, if the blazers let, let's say the blazers are are healthy uh, as long as they have other options out on the floor they can afford to go with nasir and Whiteside for stretches 
um, having two non-shooters as long as they have Simons and Dame, Dame and CJ, CJ and Simons. Like yeah, you and, have to have two and pl- Hood too. Yeah, but I'm just, I was talking about uh, the, like two of those three guards need to be on the floor. Like you need to have the premier creators on the floor. Um, and Hood can easily be the other guy that you kind of put in there uh, if you're playing like a real small lineup. But I know Bazemore shooting hasn't been great to start, but honestly, I think we're going to see some lineups out there where you have Dame, CJ, Bazemore, Hood, Nasir. I, I think you might see that um, when the Blazers go, when they go to their small lineup, when they were running Hazonia or Tolliver at the five. They may look at running the seer at that position uh, when there's a stretch five on the floor. That's not a real, a real post threat, because um, Nasir can hold his own physically. Nasir's six six by old NBA measurement six seven, <laughs> but strength wise, I wouldn't put it past him to be one of the strongest guys on the team. Like pound to pound, he is a truck. So covering a guy in the paint, not a problem. In wingspan, for as far as his, as far as size goes. He, he's the elite. So I, I, I think he could be on the floor with Bazemore pretty easily in a lot of different situations. And honestly, it would probably behoove Portland to do that in certain situations where they need stops. Steve? No, I, I think Bazemore's shooting is bound to get better. Yeah. I, I really feel like as he's one of those guys who I really believe in as this roster gels and he really falls into his role and really understands what it is. And, and he's not stretching to to cover a bunch of spots, I think he's a guy whose shooting is going to get better. That being said, the more big switchable guys who can guard down a position or up a position, I mean, you can never have enough of those guys in the modern NBA. And I think, like Dan alluded to, is you just have to make sure you have a creator on the floor. And like if you have what CJ McCollum was doing last night, where he's making his teammates better and scoring himself, like that's huge. If you have Anthony Simons, who's becoming more and more of a facilitator as the season goes on and he can get his own shot whenever he wants and same with dame there like if that's happening and then i mean really i mean i know i you know disparaged his name earlier but if Paul gasol plays he's a guy who can facilitate has stretched the floor previously in his career and he's a guy who can kind of open up the floor alongside those guys and handle more of the facilitation duties and you know kind of keep defenders honest well, you brought up, y'all brought up CJ, and I wanted to make sure we spent a little time talking about him tonight. He had a good scoring night against San Antonio. He had 32. He also, I believe, had his season high in assists. Looked like he was making things happen for his teammates, like you said. What do you guys think about CJ's play as of late? Do you think that he's rounding more into the form that we expected? And do you think he's got what you've seen? He's got even more growth that uh, he can do. Uh, his first 10 games may have been one of the worst 10 game switches of his time as a blazer, but that, that, that was my take. And I went back and watched clip after clip after clip and he never looked right. And one of the things I think we've all, all three of us would, would agree on, even when CJ takes a contested shot, it looks good when he's, when he's in, in rhythm and in, in, in a right mindset and confident in his shot. He, he didn't look good. In his 10 games, he looked off balance. He looked off kilter. He looked like he didn't trust his shot. He looked didn't like have, have the confidence. He wasn't getting to the same spots or he was pulling up a step earlier or a step later. Like nothing just looked right. It was like an alternate dimension where things just were just a little bit off, no matter how you looked at it. And then, you know, he looks at tape and he starts 
focusing on little things with his shooting coach. And lo and behold, he gets to his spots and he, he starts being a little bit more efficient, a little bit more efficient, and then a little bit better. And then, you know, he plays the Spurs last night and uh, has one of his best half of basketball I've ever seen. Like that's, that's a pretty startling transformation. Um, not only was he scoring five of eight from three, nine of 13 from the floor, which was incredible. Five rebounds, five assists and a half. Like, and sure you can get some help on those rebounds and sure you can get some help on those assists, but he was active. He was everywhere. He was where he needed to be. And, and Dame seeing these kind of jump defenses thrown at him where he's got two, three and four sets of eyes. Like it's a Pelican series all over again. Uh, finds a way to, to feed CJ and kind of get him going and keep him going because he's got the hot hand. And he, as I went back and watched all of his shots from that game, he's getting to his spots like we know CJ McCollum. Getting to the elbows from the you know from the right wing, that right to left crossover, that little hezzy, split the defense, get to the left elbow, pull up the 18 to 16 foot, you know, hesitation blow by to the 10 foot floater. Uh, the wing threes off of a bunch of DHO action, getting to those spots. Like if you look at his shot chart from the first half against the Spurs, he didn't shoot inside 10 feet, mid range, four of five, five of eight from three, just cooking, just absolutely cooking his spots. And I I think all of us again would agree that when CJ gets to the spots, he likes to get to on the floor. He's one of the four or five premier shooters in the league when he's going. And it's just very, very strange to see that switch flip. And maybe it is the Carmelo bump. And we can thank Carmelo Anthony for that. And we can thank Neil O'Shea for that. So you're finding I, all kinds of things to be thankful for, Dan. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's me. Mr. Thankful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, Steve, what are your thoughts on the start to CJ's season? So I think Dan really kind of hit on the transformation. I, I I don't have anything to add to that as far as, you know, he's finally looks like he got to the spots he likes to go to and was creating the space. I think one thing a little bit to add to that is there was a clear league emphasis on guys creating space on offense with They're their off arm. And that is something that CJ is uses a lot. And, and you saw it early in the season, he was picking up these offensive foul calls and his aggression train changed would change immediately after those went That's on. Good. And, and I, I think that those emphasis points of emphasis kind of die down after a couple of weeks into the season and we're there. So I think that's part of it. And I, I think the other thing too, is I think last against the Spurs was one of the first times I've seen him hit a corner shooter and and that's just something that he was he was not if he was going downhill he was not kicking the ball out and that's something that dame has utilized a lot through the first part of the season is finding anthony in the corner or baysmore or hood and, and really i think it was nasir's only three-pointer which came off of a cj kick i believe it could have i'm fairly wow. sh- and, and so that's that's kind of that's and that's what cj has to do and like that's that's always kind of been my my critique of his game is yes, he is deadly in the offense and he is a perfect guy to play second fiddle to, to Dame a lot of the time. But when his shot isn't dropping, how does he make the Blazers better? How does he make mm-hmm. his teammates better? And, and on against the Spurs, we saw how he can do that. And, and whether that's hustling for extra rebounds or, or finding the open guys on the perimeter when the defense is purely focused on, on Dame and and himself that's that's how he's going to have to get better and if this team is going to find a way out with all these injuries he's going to have to play like this consistently 
to going forward. And, and you know, it's one game. We, we, it, it's far from the sample that we've seen so far this season. So this has to continue. Just want to touch on something real quick. And I, I knew he picked a, a, a couple coming into this season. CJ had 65 total offensive fouls called on him. He total has six, for his whole career. 65 total offensive fouls called against him for his career. He has picked up six already this season. That's that's pretty crazy when you think about that. Like how how quickly he has picked those up. And six doesn't sound like a lot, but that's to your point, weak, Steve. You know, and it adds up for a whole but, season. Yeah, and it, and it's again, I think it's it's less about the quantity of them and more about how he's getting them. Because I remember there, in one game, he picked up two in the span of like three minutes. And now that I think about that, yeah, that had to have impacted him quite a bit as far as where he's getting to. And that would also explain why, because that off arm he uses to get to the paint, to get to the mm-hmm. rim. And if you look at his shot chart from the last couple of games, he hasn't been going to the rim. That's interesting. I'm going to go back and, and and watch over the last three games and see how many times he's actually trying to initiate that body contact. That makes a that makes a lot of sense in terms of also just kind of how we've seen CJ do things because because if if coming into the year he knew there was going to be these points of emphasis, it probably was. You know, or it may have been kind of behind why what you were saying, Dan, he couldn't wasn't quite getting to his regular spots because maybe he was thinking about about that and then getting picked up for fouls. And and maybe at this point he's figured it out or he started to figure it out. And he's got the confidence to keep playing um, under these new points of emphasis. And, or also, like you said, Steve, it's kind of uh, slacking off <laughs> now that yeah, well, we're I, a few weeks into the season. <laughs> yeah, they usually I'm trying to think of, I wrote the recap for that night and I think. Where I really noticed it, I believe, was in the Dallas game, and that he really trailed off in that game after picking up a couple. But I mean, that was one of his better games. But he just stopped going inside. I want to say, but I, it was something I I'd watched because I picked up a few of the early extended recaps on the season. It was something I noticed when he really he stopped going inside when that happened. Well, I, whatever it is, I hope that he gets it figured out because the hashtag season of CJ is is waiting uh, to be used, and I'm sure we're going to start using it anytime now. <laughs> we have just a few minutes left. I don't know about you guys, but I have very selective memory these days, and really all I can think of is the last game that the Blazers played, which they won. Um, but they... And then also at the beginning of this week, they played Atlanta, which they also won in overtime. In the middle, there were a couple of losses versus Sacramento and Toronto. So I guess mm. sort of the last thing for us to, to discuss is I'm wondering what you guys see as the main differences between when the Blazers win and when the Blazers lose. Uh, just taking a look at the numbers real quick, and we, we talked about this beforehand. The, uh, this was something I was wondering myself, and I kind of started digging into it a little bit. And the Blazers are playing a little bit faster. Uh, and their wins. The the big thing is, is not only are they playing faster, the defensive rating is significantly better. And their losses, it's 112. And their wins, it's 104. Um, they're rebounding ever so slightly. They're actually turning the ball over more. 
Um, and the assist percentage is about the same. So it's really about pace and, and defense. And I think in that pace, I think they, they get uh, a little bit more active, a little bit more engaged, and a little bit more aggressive in those situations more than anything else. And a lot of this is there's going to be a ton of noise. Not only is it early in the season, Stotts has used six different starting lineups, which is kind of changed how and when and who he rotates in at certain points in the game. Like the only things that you know is it's Dame CJ Whiteside and Ant is going to get a long run in the second quarter and a long run in the uh, late third into the early fourth. Like those are the only things that are really kind of set in stone. Everything else is kind of a crapshoot. So um, it's pretty much a part of well, it has been a part of the regular rotation, he, but like, well, I mean, he's still, they still need a backup center. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. He scouts getting regular minutes, but I'm talking about when and where and how those minutes are coming. Mm. Like, there, there's not a ton of consistency in there. Mm-hmm. Like, it's Whiteside getting in foul trouble, right. or, you know, uh, or, or Lavisier getting in foul trouble. It kind of depends. Yeah. Exactly. And so it, it's it's been a little bit weird, but like when you look at the numbers for the most part, and the strange thing is, and they don't have as obviously as many home games, they're playing faster on the road. They're rebounding defensively much better on the road. Um, <laughs> and they're playing better defensively significantly on the road. So... There's, like I said, there's a lot of noise in these numbers, but there's definitely some some interesting trends that are developing. Steve, what do you think? Well, I, I think what I see is probably it represents a lot of what Dan said as far as the numbers go. Is but for me, instead of just rehashing what we've seen from CJ McCollum, because I think when he is dialed in, it makes a huge difference. Obviously, to have Dame have kind of that release valve, but I think. Really, it just comes down to when Hassan Whiteside is doing things that actually impact the game, and that's defense, that's rebounding. And, and a lot of that limiting offensive rebounds really helps dictate the entire pace of the of the game. And really, when you see him dialed in and doing the right things and positioning himself, it really makes a difference. And when he can do that for consistent stretches, especially in the third and fourth quarters, it, it makes a huge difference to stemming these runs that just kill the Blazers. Like the Raptors was, it was one of the craziest things. Like just those, there was two ex, like double digit extended runs that the Raptors went on in the second half. And it's just, it really makes you miss, you know, a use of Nurkic who's controlling the glass mm-hmm. uh, rebounding wise. And then also it's just a guy you can kick the ball to and get a bucket. And, and when Whiteside can do that, I mean, it's not pretty all the time, but when he can, we saw it against San Antonio, when he's able to get the ball, not put it on the floor, turn and shoot, a lot of the times good things happen there. Um, not always, especially it's a flip shot. But if he's moving forcefully and not thinking about going into his offense and everything, it, it usually brings a good result, and that can stem runs, and that can put Portland in games, can help them sustain leads or, or cut away at them. When I was going through the last week trying to choose which was going to be mom's favorite, I was just kind of land- randomly cl- clicking through all of the sortable team stats on NBA.com. And I was just seeing where the Blazers were in just like column after column after column where where they ranked. And except for like assists and... um. Well, except for assists, I was 
actually pretty surprised to find that they weren't like at the bottom, the very bottom of the barrel because it feels like they're, uh, you know, really way down there in terms of rebounding, you know, compared to at least where they've been. And um, I guess what I kind of took away from that and also because the games haven't been huge losses there's been huge runs within those games, but there haven't been huge losses at the end. I was kind of came away from that going, huh, maybe things aren't as bad as they feel like they are right now. How would you guys respond to that? I, I mean, I, I, that's, I, I completely agree. I think it's just, and I mean, I touched on a little bit too, is just being able to control the momentum is something that they have not been able to do this season. And and until you can do that, especially with the injuries that they're facing, it's, it's going to put you behind the ball. It's going to make you play down to your competition. And that's why Portland gets in a lot of these situations, especially in the second half. Dan, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, the injuries are are playing a a massive part in this. And they're, and this is the thing I keep going back to. Everybody talks about keep kind of like, you know, they just need to tread water. They need to do more than that. And uh, you find teams know that Portland needs to do that, and they're throwing the kitchen sink defense at Damian Lillard, and that puts Portland in an even weirder position, right? So it's it's one of those things where there's not a great answer with the personnel that they have right now, and that's just not going to change until February. But would you would you agree that the basketball itself – might not be as bleak as it seems like, according to their record and just sort of the general feeling, except for I'll, I'll days say, after wins. <laughs> I'll, I'll say this. the When things are going well, it goes really well, i.e. the first quarter against the Spurs. That, that's, that's their best quarter of basketball this season. I, I don't think anybody's going to question that. The problem is, coming into that, there was maybe one other quarter of, like, great basketball. The rest of the games have had five minute periods of good to great basketball marred by absolutely atrocious levels of basketball. I mean, I I don't, I don't want to beat on Mario too much because Lord knows everybody's giving it to him, but like there, there's been sequences where Mario Tolliver scal, I mean, really Simons has been great in every game, but one. Um, so you can't really get mad at him, but the rest of the guys, man, there can't even, have had games in CJ again in the first 10 games where the, you just look up and down and like, for the love of God, will somebody please help Dame? And, and now you're at these situations where it's like, God, that's really good basketball, you know, against the Spurs. And then you pop gets ejected and they go on a 42 to 12 run. Like the, the, the contrast and in, in types and levels of basketball because of the way the roster is constructed right now uh, vacillates from, wow, this is awesome to, what the hell did I just watch so fast, depending on what units out there? It's 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 really I think that's part of the problem is like the perception changes depending on how much of the game you actually watched. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but I mean, to to sum it up, though, Tara, I, I think I do agree with you more with that assessment. Like, I, I really feel like and Dan touched on it, too, is when it's I think it goes good for especially with certain lineups for an extended amount of time, they're playing mm-hmm. basketball that we're familiar with. But when it goes bad, when those runs happen, <laughs> they are so disastrous that like, you know, Damian Lillard at an MVP level is not able to dig them out. I mean, I'm going to use this until I say, I was going to use this until I die. The Blazers lost a game where Dame scored 60 on 30 shots. Yeah. Like that's, 
that's hard. It's hard to overcome any outlying narrative when you just go 60 on 30, 33 shots. Like yeah, that's, that, that should be reserved for the Suns and Devin Booker, not the Blazers yeah. and David Lillard. Uh, speaking of that, uh, that shot and that performance, were you guys at all, did, did it give you pause or did it surprise you at all that he took that last shot to get it to 60? Yeah. <laughs> did it? Okay, me too. Yeah. I was like, wow, I can't believe he took that shot because usually, sure. you know, he likes things to happen in the course of the game. But at that point, that extra three points wasn't going to mean anything except it, for that it, he would have 60 points. He knew it and it was a screw you three. And I think part of it was directed at his, at his teammates. And I, I bet that's me projecting 100%. Yes, that's, it that, is. But what that else is, What else gets him to take that shot in that situation? That seems super uncharacteristic that he would do it as a screw you to his teammates and more of a, at least I can prove I did this. I, I would strongly disagree. <laughs> but we're not gonna we're not gonna start yelling because it's time to wrap it up. No, no, no. But <laughs> the, the flip side of it is is listening to Travis Demers call on the radio. He go Dame's gonna take it down the court, dribble it. Oh no, no, he's not. He's gonna he's he, he took the shot and he hit it. <laughs> so yeah. and then he I think, off the court. Yeah, and I think everybody looked at that and was like, uh, Dame Dame took that shot, huh? Yeah. Oh, okay, I, I almost expected like a Nicholas Batum type reaction. Remember the the triple well, double. Didn't, didn't, yeah. I mean, obviously wasn't going for 60, but didn't Myers Leonard give Jimmer Fredette the business a few <laughs> years ago when Fredette did this? He was like when Fredette was with the Knicks and like he came down and shot, same situation shot it. And like Myers, like I've never seen Myers get so upset. Like, yeah, I was like, oh man, got a little excitement out here. For so. Dame, Dame's the one that gave Chris Paul a lot of hell when Chris mm -hmm. Paul scored that layup for what his 16,000th point or whatever it was. So, well, and yeah. that was a reaction to Damien's very first game when he took that last shot after the game was over or after yeah, the, it, the game was decided. Um, but anyway, mm -hmm. we've reached the point of the podcast where we're talking about the great Myers Leonard Jimmer Fredette matchup. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's probably about time to call okay. it a night. Any last thoughts on how things are going or how excited you are to welcome Carmelo Anthony to Portland? I just want to say that one of my vivid memories of the last decade of basketball was like, I think it was Dame's first. I say it's vivid, but I just remember the play, not necessarily what year it was, but it was like Dame's first all-star game. And he's going up for like a layup and like Carmelo all of a sudden plays defense. Like it might've been the only time I've seen him play defense and like swats Dame at the rim. And like, like Lillard looks at LaMarcus, like what just happened? Like I thought we they weren't going to play defense. <laughs> and so it was, I'm just happy to see that hopefully, you know, old foes can become new friends and we're going to open a new chapter in Portland basketball and we're going to all get to watch Dan Morang's heart rate go up and descend <laughs> until December 15th. Such a beautiful way to, to wrap it up. Steve, do you want to go ahead and tell folks how they can find your work? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Steve D hoops. Um, I am on blazers edge basically daily um my works on there please jump in the comment section i do read them i don't always respond and uh shoot me something <laughs> on twitter if you have a question he reads them i get text messages about him <laughs> hey yeah i'm not low on that. <laughs> okay dan 
Any last words? Oh, last words. That sounds morbid. Uh, yeah, no, closing, it's, it's, closing thoughts. There you go. Uh, and, and honestly, and again, we, we talked about this during the mellow uh, emergency podcast. I kind of call this a transition season. So as, as upset as I may seem about things, I'm really not more than anything more than like the messaging and the way things are being packaged and sent out. Like I, I was just like, Hey, let's, let's watch Anthos here. Like, let's, let's see what happens. Let's see how the white side experiment plays out. So again, it seems right until December 15th. I, I'm going to talk about things, but like, I'm not locked in until I know what this team's roster is kind of going into next season. I'm going to sit back and just kind of like yell at the TV every now and then can't do it in the arena. Cause you know, they they kind of frown upon that there. So, uh, but yeah, that's that, that's pretty much where I'm at right now. And as much as I may rail against it, somebody somebody said I reminded them like of their grand their survivalist grandfather yelling about something in a tweet the other day. I'm just like, eh, whatever, dude. I I I don't care. I just I don't like mellow. <laughs> that, you know, I, I saw that tweet, Dan, where he compared you to yeah, like his survivalist grandparent grandpa. And I was trying to figure out what my role is if I was like the long-suffering grandma or just like the really patient nurse i was gonna go with like you're 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 the neighbor <laughs> the neighbor yeah you're, you're... like who brings pies or something uh, charcuterie board specifically <laughs> oh okay <laughs> <laughs> all right well i am uh tcb biggs on twitter you can find me there you can also find me on sundays with the mom's favorite column on blazer's edge you can also find the Hoops and Talks podcast every Thursday. And let's see, go ahead and find Blazer's Edge on your favorite podcast app platform and subscribe to that. We love hearing from you on tweets. Let's see, I think that about wraps it up for me. Dan, tell them where they can find you and take us out of here. All right, folks, as always, you can find me on NBC Sports Northwest with Joe Simons following every single Blazers basketball game on NBC Sports Northwest 737. Uh, and we will be at the Rialto. We're getting kicked out of our studio pretty damn quick for the uh, KGW toy drive, which is the greatest reason to get kicked out of our studio for. So uh, if you want to come on down to the Rialto for the post game or to come down and watch the game, Joe and I and the production crew will be down there. Come out and hang out with us and talk basketball and trades and I'll, I'll boot up the trade machine for everybody. Uh, you can find me on social media at D at D M A R A N G. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or do you just want to yell at me? DMs are always open. Go ahead. You wouldn't be the first one. Uh, other than that for Tara, for Steve, for me, for everybody else. Thanks for coming. Bye. And that was our totally unemotional podcast. <laughs> <laughs>